Hi, everyone, and welcome to Brewing the Tea, a podcast hosted by Zha Zha Liao and Tony Liu, where we sit down with Taiwanese and Taiwanese American entrepreneurs and leaders to tell their stories and inspire the next generation. Today, we're so excited to have Nick Chun join us. Nick is the co founder and CEO of Pico, a platform that lets newsrooms and other content creators earn more revenue directly from their audiences through payments, newsletter signups, user signups, and more. Previously, he was the director of design at Dots and a designer at Esper and Cloud Physics. Nick went to Stanford where he studied product design, and today we'll chat about the core reasons why local newsrooms have suffered, how he doesn't believe in subscription fatigue. The most challenging parts of Pico's seed raise and more. Nick, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. We're very excited. Tell us about your background. Tell us about your family, where you grew up, what hobbies you had when you were in high school. How was high school for you? A lot of good stuff, yes. I grew up in the Bay Area in a pretty Asian community, Foster City, if you're familiar. I think it's one third Asian. So I grew up in an environment that was frankly very safe in every sense of the word. It was a really great upbringing. I, I got to develop an obsession with music, with the performing arts, did a lot of student government in school, and I nothing to complain about, really. <laughs> It was the, the perfect childhood. I, I, I really like growing up in the Bay Area. Every Saturday morning, our whole family would go to our local Chinese school. Obviously, my sister and I would go as students. My mom was the principal for some years, and my dad conducted the school choir. And that really was a strong community for us. We got to know all the other families at that Chinese school, especially through, that, through my dad's chorus. So I grew up alongside... A lot of other kids who had the exact same experience as I did. We went camping together. We had dinners together. It was really wonderful. That's awesome. And growing up, it seems like you had a lot of musical interests. Did you have any design or kind of art-related interests growing up? I did. I, I think most of that comes from my dad, probably. The music is from both of them. They actually met in a choir at Berkeley. But the in terms of drawing and art, my dad is a fantastic painter. He sketches a lot these days as well, and his sketches are beautiful. I, I am nowhere near as good as him. In fact, it frustrated me a lot growing up when he would take me uh, on some day trip, and, and we'd both have our sketchbooks, and, and I'd see that his looks so much better than mine. That just made me upset. But yeah, it also got me really interested in practicing art, I learned oil painting as a kid, and then eventually that it quite quickly turned from art to design, the application of art in a product sense. I remember in elementary school I started obsessing over cars. I could name pretty much every car on the street, still can to this day, which is just a huge waste of brain space. But during those years, I, I started drawing my own designs of cars. And I thought for the longest time that I would one day start my own car company. <laughs> so I feel like that was the really the beginning of my, my career, if you'll call it that, as a designer. That's awesome, Ed. 
I guess I'm similar to you in one way in which I can also probably name every car on the street, but not for the same, I did not have the same design interest with cars. <laughs> I, I guess that kind of explains a bit of you know, why you decided to get into design. And Stanford has a famous product design school and degree. How did the methodology there influence the way you've since thought about design? Oh, gosh. There's life before Stanford product design and then life after Stanford product design. It, it influenced my design approach in, in every single way. Frankly, before learning product design in that academic setting, I could really only appreciate it as a consumer. I think it, if there were any superpower, it was just that I had an eye for what was done remarkably well by a company and and you know may have been car companies in elementary school I, I remember in seventh grade it became apple that became my number one obsession i remember flipping over this issue of time magazine and the full bleed ad on the back was of the g4 imac i'd never seen anything like that and i was immediately sucked in and i, I wanted to know everything about apple but really throughout those years in k-12 it was just that. It was an obsession as a consumer. I had no idea how to then create that feeling for someone else. And that's what product design at Stanford helped teach us. And really, it's, I think some outsiders might see it as almost cultish with our post-it notes and Sharpies. Once you start the program, there is a whole set of vocabulary that you start using, and you're surrounded by other people who say the same things. It, it really, it's a very immersive program, but it, it really helped us all dig into the why behind all these designs we see every day. That makes sense, and it actually reminds me, I, I've worked with designers from Stanford Product Design and at Startups before, and right after they joined, we bought a lot of sticky notes, and then they were everywhere. <laughs> I guess, what are some of the, you know, what are some very practical things that are super useful to you today from that those courses? You know, it, they, I, I think the program directors might not like hearing me say this, because it, it took some years after graduating from Stanford to realize that the design methodology we learned is perhaps not really applicable to what we do in startups, especially early stage startups. That was tough to reconcile. In school, we were really working on these fast-paced six-week projects, or sorry, shorter than that. In a 10-week quarter, we might do three projects uh, where you're basically just parachuting into some industry that you have no knowledge about. And yeah, post-it notes, Sharpie, candy, lots of sugar to keep the juices flowing. And that's product design, right? No idea is a bad one. And then you narrow in, you prototype, you iterate. It doesn't really work like that in the real world in startups. And that was jarring at first when I went into the, the workforce. In some ways, the train leaves the station once you launch a product. That design methodology it doesn't necessarily always work for the smaller point features. It's really great for rethinking something or, or starting a company from scratch. It's, it's, a, it's great for that. And I, I certainly used elements of the process when starting Pico. But once you've launched, then really it, it 
zeroes in on just that iteration piece of the puzzle. But to answer your question, really, when I think about the the skills that I took away from it that I use almost day to day, it comes down to just a couple of classes, and one of which was the one that most product design students wanted to skip. (laughs) I remember everyone was trying to study abroad in Berlin that quarter to avoid that class, but it was the business class. Product design had a business class tailored for the program's students. It was just 10 weeks crash course in developing a business plan, pitching investors, and doing a basic P&L. Oh my God, I can't tell you how helpful that was. It looks like you moved from the Bay Area to New York when you started Pico. What motivated you to leave the Bay Area after living here as a child and then going to Stanford? And how does your experience in New York today compare to that? Yeah, a couple of reasons. And, and this was, I'd say, about half a year to a year after starting Pico. For that first period, it was just me and my co-founder, Jason. And then we got a, a couple checks from investors, and we were ready to start hiring. We needed engineers. Uh, I could build a very convincing front-end prototype, but I couldn't do much beyond that. And it is just incredibly difficult to hire in the Bay Area. Everyone's got golden handcuffs. Everyone's got these amazing benefits. If you're a talented engineer, there's got to be a really good reason to leave your cushy job and join a startup, particularly one at which you're not a co-founder. You're just an early employee. It's next to impossible to find someone to do that. And really, you do need senior talent when you're starting the company. You can't really start a a software startup with just a couple of boot camp grads, right? So we were hitting a dead end trying to hire in the Bay Area. And mind you, that's with our network of Stanford friends, who many of whom studied computer science. It was even then it was hard to get our friends to join, even with names like Bloomberg Beta backing us. Still hard. And it was around that time that we got connected to the Hillary campaign, which was, this was 2016, obviously, and the Hillary campaign was based out in Brooklyn. And they had an amazing tech team. They were shipping so many products. And this was, I think we got in touch with them in October. So it was independent of the election outcome that many of them planned on going back to the tech sector. They weren't planning on moving to, to DC. So to, for us, this was the perfect opportunity. We ended up hiring two people from the HFA, the Hillary for America tech team. And we said, okay, let's move to Brooklyn. <laughs> this is where our team is. So the reason, the number one reason is really because of Hillary Clinton. <laughs> but also the second reason is Jason and I had separately gone out to New York for business to do some business development, and we both just fell in love with the city. I I had the fortune of traveling to other countries growing up, but I really didn't go to other places in the U.S. that much. I, I went to New York once or twice, just for a few days at a time, and as a child. I hadn't really seen the city as an adult who loves Broadway and likes to eat good food. So... That it, my last New York trip before moving here really opened my eyes, and, and I realized I'd been missing 
a lot. What am I doing in San Francisco? So the, the stars just align. Yeah. And I guess backing up a little bit. So you, right before you started Pico, you were the director of design at Dots. What inspired you to leave your position there and then go pursue Pico full time? Yeah, that company didn't work out. So I was the first one to declare mutiny. And I think soon after the, the rest of the team abandoned ship as well. It was sad because the that team was absolutely amazing. We, we had some some fantastic engineers there. I, th- I think one of the guys developed the page turn animation for iPad when it launched in 2010. It was this crazy idea for an app where we were trying to combine a, a lot of different concepts around privacy using burner numbers and Twilio to basically create this communication platform that allowed you to give out numbers to different people based on the context. Really interesting concept. The, the CEO is incredibly charismatic. This guy, he, he can sell water to the ocean. So he's really good at hiring, <laughs> which is why there was such a great product team. But I think the his charisma and the excitement of working with his team got the better of me. It pushed aside my my product design instincts, really, which would have screamed at me early on that there was no product market fit here, that we weren't really building something people needed. It was a want, and, and you can't start a company on a want. In your own words, describe what Pico does and how did you land on the idea? Quite simply, Pico makes it easy for experts to sell content and experiences, and it really came about through journalism. When we look at the this category of experts, we, we thought the most interesting target is journalism uh, because so much of what we've consumed online historically has been news and information. It's a, the bedrock of the internet, really. And it also happens to be an industry that has been really battered by the dynamics of online advertising over the last 20 years. To make it clear, what I'm saying is that Facebook and Google have really taken all their lunch money. As designers, we really gravitate toward these really awful problems. It's a house on fire. We want to put out the fire. So we started by focusing on journalists as experts at what they do and seeing if there's a better way to help them monetize their skill, monetize their product without relying on advertising, to go direct to audience. Because there were several trends that pointed to this being possible now in the 2010s, now the 2020s. One is that we've seen social networks really mature and and make for incredibly effective distribution networks. So you have not just newsrooms, but individual journalists becoming quite successful at building their own brand, at building their own audience online, acquiring their their audience. And we also see on the flip side of this that consumers in the last 10 years or so have become much more willing to pay for quality content. You could say it started with the iTunes store in the early 2000s, accelerated by the App Store, by Netflix, by Spotify, 
You even have the old guard, like the New York Times and Washington Post, doing incredibly well in the Trump era, <laughs> I think for reasons we can all understand. They've all really pushed consumer behavior toward payment, which sounds obvious in hindsight, but we've got to remember for the first 10, 15 years of this century, the assumption was everything is free, quote unquote free. So the, these trends on the supply and demand side really made it clear that there's an opportunity here for journalists and potentially other types of knowledge workers to really go directly to their audience to make a living. Got it. And it looks like a lot of Pico's customers today are a lot of local newsrooms and journalists. How do you think they've been affected by the changing media landscape, i.e. Facebook and Google, over the past few years? And how are their challenges different from those of larger publications such as a Wall Street Journal or a CNN? I would, I would put CNN in a different bucket. TV is pretty different. Their business model is different. A lot of it comes from advertising, for sure. But they also get paid by the cable providers for bundling in their channel. For text media, Wall Street Journal down to the local newsroom, the last 20 years have affected everyone. And I think it's been worse for local newsrooms because if you think about the advertising market that Facebook and Google really cleaned up on, it was local ads, right? Now, now if you're a local mom and pop shop, it's just so easy to go to Google or Facebook to place a very targeted ad, targeted down to the geo, the IP, to the interests. Why would you go to the local paper to do that? With the, the larger national papers, they, I, I think, were able to pivot in time, pivot their business model, that is. They had the resources to build up uh, pretty substantial tech teams, product teams. The New York Times Media Company has a huge product team, and, and they've built some amazing software in-house to take them into this new consumer revenue era of the industry. So yeah, the, the national papers have fared better than the local newsrooms, but they've all been impacted by this. And, and again, just to reiterate the this, it, it's the fact that Facebook and Google basically formed a duopoly in the advertising market over the last 20 years. And this is a business model that was invented. It was invented by journalists, by newsrooms. It's wild to, to think about that, but we have to remember that advertising did not exist 150 years ago or so. It was invented by newspapers back in the day, and they really had this nice long run of owning that business model. If you wanted to advertise as a business owner, you went to your local paper, and really everything was ripped from under them in the last 20 years. You know, besides journalists, are there other users of Pico? Yes, absolutely. And this is, it goes back to what I was saying earlier, how really our platform has come to serve a variety of experts and creatives. Journalists are really just the, <laughs> in the same way that OXO, they design their kitchen products for people with arthritis. It's the, 
most extreme user, right? If you can design something good for them, you can design something good for anyone. We all use OXO products now. The, I don't know if this is a fair analogy, but we were designing this platform for journalists because they're such an extreme user, but what we've built now applies to so many other types of knowledge workers. This summer, especially because of the pandemic, we've even seen yoga studios, gyms, start using Pico, something you couldn't have imagined just a couple years ago. But that customer expansion is happening pretty quickly for us. Well, the idea is to use our tech to gate access to their content, and that content may be pre-recorded videos or a live stream, but really we've built our tools so that they're quite flexible. It's independent of the format of your content, where you want to host it. Pico can be inserted there to manage access. Do you think that looking at just the average and consumers' wallets, there is a limit to how many subscriptions one person can buy? No. <laughs> nope. I, I don't think there's a limit. I, I don't believe in this concept of subscription fatigue because actually what we see are a lot of memberships, not necessarily subscriptions. And these words are often used interchangeably, but there, there's a nuance. I, I think... With memberships, we have to understand that people are giving that journalist, that newsroom, that expert money every month, not because they think there's some fair trade going on, not because, oh, I give you $10, I'm going to get 10 articles. Rather, it's this idea that you're supporting a tribe. You're supporting a brand. This writer speaks to you. It You being a member is a reflection of your values. So in a way, it, it's, it can even be altruistic. And there's no ceiling to altruism. You can also see this as a service. right? Some people might want to say, I'm giving you $10 a month because I think you are writing on something that is really important, that the public needs to know about. I might not read it. I might not have time for it, but I support your cause. So I, I think it's important to see it that way, that these aren't just a bunch of Netflix subscriptions competing for each other. Because with Netflix, th then you're really looking at hours spent. And you're looking at platforms that have to compete over the precious 24 hours in the day that they can fight over. But that's why I, I don't think there's, there's any ceiling here. So ultimately, do you think the proliferation of social media has been a net positive or net negative for journalism? As in, even though newsrooms have struggled with revenue, do you think it's made the ones who did survive a lot higher quality because they've been able to use social media to get sources and ultimately distribute to a wider audience? Oh boy. <laughs> Everything is problematic now. I also just saw Social Dilemma the other night which speaks to a lot of why we, we got into what we're doing at Pico. Social media it, in its own vacuum it is, is quite problematic. I, I think the fact that it, it has really altered human behavior in a noticeable way, that's terrifying. I think it, to the point where I'm beginning to wonder if it even outweighs all the benefits we've had from social media, uh, the, these really valuable connections. 
that we've made through these platforms. And when it comes to journalism, or I, let's not say journalism, but the spread of information, sure, they, they've been effective channels for information to, to get put out there. I think you could argue that more people today are informed, they're better informed, they're informed at a faster speed than in previous generations. But there's a flip side to that. I, I think for every bit of factual, well-reported information that gets spread, there's perhaps an equal amount of false information, fake news. And it's that that's the difficulty. That's why I, I hesitate so much in my answer. I, I just think there are some serious cons to consider against these pros. And... Really, the genie's out of the bottle at this point. We can't really undo much of this, but what we can do is train ourselves to be better citizens of this connected world. It requires a new skill set. As a human being, it requires a new skill set that we haven't really possessed in the past. And how do you think it's going to change in the upcoming years? Will it just further get worse, or how do you predict will happen. I've always been an optimist. I'll remain an optimist. I I think it'll get better. I think it'll get better in part because we've seen the business model underpinning media and news shift away from advertising and toward consumer revenue. I think that's great. The downside of that, of course, is that you're going to have more things behind paywalls and you might end up creating news deserts. People who can't afford access may not have the information that would really benefit them. That's slightly concerning. And I think we'll have to address that problem soon, in in the next few years. But I think it's really healthy for the industry first to at least move away from advertising. Because in that model where, where everything's driven by clicks and eyeballs, the creators of that content are incentivized to make it to make the headline grab your attention that becomes the first priority whether it's factual or not is secondary and i'm not saying that's the the attitude of all newsrooms i I think the majority of newsrooms are really great at, at what they do and have high journalistic integrity but i'm just saying that business model inherently when you take it to an extreme, it, it does encourage that behavior. So the fact that we're moving away from that, the fact that the industry has seen it as no longer sustainable, that's good. That's good. So I, I think the next five or so years, as we see more consumer revenue take hold, that should also help with limiting disinformation from spreading. Got it. And could you talk just a little bit more about some of Pico's customers? some of the more notable or interesting ones. Yeah, actually, one of our more recent customers who've joined us is Defector. And that was a really uh, fun one to help launch. The These guys came from Deadspin, if you're familiar with Deadspin, the, they're sports writers. And true to their name, they defected. They left their parent organization and they created a new startup themselves. And I think this is a trend 
we'll see more and more across the media industry where you have really talented writers defecting from their company. And they're, they're not the first ones by any means. We, we had this with Kara Swisher back in the day, with Jessica Lesson. This has been going on for some time, and I think it's only going to accelerate because these journalists are also making a name for themselves. You know, the, on, on Twitter, it's not just the information coming from the newsroom's Twitter account. It's coming from that journalist. So a lot of these journalists have built up personal brands, and that is capital that no one can take away from them. They've acquired this really valuable audience, and with tools like Pico, they may realize, oh, it's actually not hard to then take this audience I've built up and make a living by going directly to them for revenue. I'm really glad you mentioned Defector. I, I love Deadspin, and it's good to know that the writers have gone somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're great. So let's rewind a little bit to last year when you raised your you know, seed round. What was that process like, and what were some you know, key learnings for you through, through, throughout that? Yeah, it, it, what an interesting process. First of all, first-time founder here. So I think it, it's always going to be an uphill battle for a first-time founder. Every connection I made to every investor was from scratch. I didn't know anyone going into it. But on top of that, we made our lives even more challenging by picking this industry that really most investors were, were shying away from. I, I should clarify here that the $4.5 million we announced last year there was a small chunk of that was raised over the course of two, three years as pre-seed money because we, we started this in 2016. We started talking to investors in 2016. And boy, oh boy, the, the change in sentiment across VCs from 2016 to 2019 is just astounding. It's like a 180. In 2016, mo most people thought, oh, media, they heard the word media and they ran away. Then just fast forward a few years and it, it's the hottest category all of a sudden. They realize that, oh yeah, consumers will pay. They will pay. That, that was the big question when we first started. I, I got this so many times from investors who turned us down. They, oh, I'm just not sure people will pay for content. And with every day that passes, that just became, it just became clear and clear that was completely false, unfounded. So fast forward to 2019, and we just had a lot more believers out there, I think. And uh, we found the perfect partner in Stripe. Their motto is that they want to increase the GDP of the internet. I, I love it. It's so simple and, and clear, and, and it's, a, it's a great rallying cry that makes sense across all their product lines. But the point we were making to Stripe is that there's one sector of the internet GDP that may be a bit harder for them to unlock. And that's this space that we're talking about. Experts selling ideas. Why is that a bit harder for them? Because these customers that we're going after, these are small businesses, oftentimes just a one-person shop. But these are generally small businesses that have no developers. And Stripe, it's an amazing product, but it's a developer-facing product. And so our argument was that to really unlock the potential in this sector of the internet GDP, 
you have to package Stripe in something that's a bit more off the shelf, easy to use for someone who's not too technical. So that's what we're doing. And I think it just, it clicked. So they've been a fantastic partner for us. They led our seed round last year with Precursor Ventures. Nice. And what, I know that your sister Natasha is a pretty well-known journalist for CNN. What's that been having her as a resource for you just as you build Pico? Oh, it's great. It's great. And yeah, I still can't get over it. Sometimes she doesn't tell me every time she's on TV. And sometimes I'll just have CNN on. I'm in the kitchen and suddenly I hear my sister's voice. (laughs) It's still surreal. She's great. She's been that insider voice for us. And really, if we rewind back to when we started Pico, a lot of the inspiration came from what she was telling us about her industry. Because Jason and I have always loved consuming media. We've loved consuming the news. We just didn't really know what was going on behind the curtain. And it was hearing from my sister about the dynamics of the newsroom, what was happening from a financial perspective, that the gears began spinning in our heads. Huh, something's wrong, and I wonder if we can fix it. Nice, nice. I assume it's pretty nice to have an industry insider in the family. And ultimately, I guess, the vision for Pico, where do you see it in five years or 10 years? Like what maybe are our services that you guys ultimately want to offer journalists and newsrooms? Well, really, we've already moved beyond journalists and newsrooms now. We're already serving a lot of different customers And we're going to take that even further. You're going to see a lot of new products coming from us next year that really, we we hope it'll get people's creative juices flowing, that knowledge workers out there will realize, oh, I can start my own business. And really the vision here looking five years out is that Pico will be the business platform for all digital small businesses. And I say that digital small businesses, I I think for most people, it just sounds like an obvious term. But when you think about it, it's a very new concept. The idea of a small business being 100% digital, no physical products, right? No shopping cart on your site. You're basically selling ideas. You're selling writing, video, music, but this idea of a 100% digital small business, I think that is the future form factor of all small businesses. I think that's where things are going. And this pandemic may prove that, really. There's been a healthy growth rate over the decades in, in small businesses, most of them very small, most of them solo entrepreneur sized. And yes, that those numbers probably went off a cliff this spring. But as that entrepreneurship comes back into the economy, as we start to see the number of small businesses tick up again, the question will be, what do those small businesses look like? And and I would wager most people would say they won't look like what they did in 2019. So I think we're going to see more and more of these 100% digital small businesses. And 
there is a, a whole customer software tech stack here that needs to be addressed. So there's a lot for us to build. I, I'm so excited. That's awesome. This is a really random question, but I think when we think of digital small businesses, we think of writers or maybe teachers, fitness instructors, you mentioned that. Are there any other categories that are newer that I guess most people aren't thinking of that you've seen? Sure, yeah. We haven't even touched on services yet, but that's certainly within the realm of possibilities. But the idea is that no matter what your product is, I, I think the common trait across all of these digital small businesses will be that they are using content to draw people in, to draw people into their digital shop, right? Because one, one thing we've learned from the last 15 or so years is that content is really the best brand differentiator. And you're seeing e-commerce companies do this too, especially in the more competitive spaces. They're all having their own blogs and even magazines now. So the, we're going to see a lot of different product types, but I think content will be a common thread across all of them. Cool. I think that's all of the questions that we have for today. So we can kind of transition into the more the more fun ones at the end. Do you have a favorite tea? Ooh, I have a couple. Yeah, I really love the Marco Polo tea from it's this French tea company. They're so good. It's hard to find in the States which is annoying, but they've got the most fragrant teas. And then my parents also give me this tea from Taiwan, which is, it's a golden buckwheat tea. Really great. I Wait, I have the Chinese name here. Hold on, I, I see the bag. Huangjing Chao Mai. Do you have a favorite Taiwanese food? All of it. <laughs> oh my God, anything from the night markets. There's this amazing stinky tofu stand right outside the National Taiwan University bookstore that I just, I love that one in particular. I like the, the fried stinky tofu. I know there's a fried versus steamed and I think people are trying to be healthier these days. So there's more and more steamed, but eh, gotta, gotta go with fried. I love the, what is it called? Hu Bing, the black pepper bun. I forget which night market it's at, but that is so delicious. All of these things are wildly unhealthy, but you know what? I just accept that whenever I go to Taiwan, I, I will come back heavier. That's just a given, and it's absolutely worth it. All right, last question here. So what's your favorite thing to do in Taiwan besides eating? Oh God, I, I feel like so much of our family trips in Taiwan are just centered around eating. No, we like going into the, there's the mountain outside Taipei City, and there's a lot of fun stuff to do there. Hot springs. Uh, that's a lot of fun. Sorry, every activity I'm thinking of, I, I'm also thinking of the restaurant we go to. <laughs> it's, it's just all so food-centric. Yeah, day trips down the island to other cities. There's some great museums in Taiwan. Yeah, man, I, I, I miss that place. And it's sad that I won't be able to <laughs> go back for a long time. Nick, thanks so much for the time today. Appreciate you chatting with us, answering all of our questions. And yeah, we're excited for, for this episode to air. Thank you for having me. 
a lot of fun and these questions make me think about things a, a bit deeper that I <laughs> don't really get the chance to dwell on day to day so this is great 